If you have a Bible, you can open to Exodus chapter 20. The text is also printed in the bulletin. While you're turning there, um, I forgot during the announcements, uh, I'm doing this to save myself from my wife's wrath later. Um, I forgot to to mention that um, there are uh, nursery volunteers needed, and also probably volunteers for the... um, the snacks that we enjoy during fellowship. So, I mean, if you want to sign up for those things, all the information's there on the back of the bulletin. Um, if you sign up for uh, nursery volunteering, then hopefully the rotation is, you know, serving in there about once every five weeks or so. So just to let you know. All right. Am I okay now? <laughs> all right. Um, well, let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we um, come and we sit before your word. You have given us your word. You've not left us uh, in the darkness and in the silence in this world, uh, the chaos of this world. You have spoken into it for the good of our souls and for your own glory. And so we pray that our souls would respond to your word this morning uh, favorably, that you would um, work in us by your spirit uh, a response of faith to your word. Help us to receive it and be changed by it into the likeness of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been going through the Ten Commandments. We're looking at the picture that... um, that the Ten Commandments are painting of uh, human flourishing, right? The, the, um, the way human life is supposed to be in the kingdom of God. And conversely, then, we're also looking at the spiritual and relational uh, disintegration that takes place when we break God's commandments and then the, the ensuing divine wrath, condemnation that we deserve for that. But then ultimately how Jesus Christ, uh, the Savior and Redeemer of the world, he fulfills the law for us, he forgives us, he restores us, and he gives us hope of a glorious renewal uh, in the future. And so we've started looking at um, the the latter commandments, if you remember how they break down. The first four have to do primarily with kind of that vertical relationship, the uh, relationship between us and and God um, most directly addressed in those first four Commandments, and then the last six then have to do uh, primarily with our uh, relationships with one another, um, while acknowledging then that those relationships, the, the, the last six, um, actually also have to do with our hearts before God, right? Um, it's not just that we're relating to other human beings in these commandments, but um, uh, at the heart of each commandment, at the root of it, still lies um, you know, our connection to God directly, or the lack thereof, as the case may be. So um, so let me read um, a little quote from John Frame that shows up in the, the beginning of the bulletin there for you. The, <clears throat> he says that Scripture represents marriage as a reflection of our covenant relationship with God. To violate marriage is to violate that covenant, and unfaithfulness to God is adultery. All sin is unfaithfulness to God, spiritual adultery. You see that all over the scriptures, by the way, especially in the Old Testament, the way that God talks about his people as being faithless, and he is the faithful spouse. Um, So the seventh commandment, 
like the others, actually covers all of life from its particular perspective. Whenever we sin, we can think of it as marital unfaithfulness. And we should think of it that way, better to understand our radical need of forgiveness from our heavenly husband. The seventh commandment's perspective on sin is a radically personal perspective presented in vivid sexual imagery. It yields a powerful motivation for repentance. So vivid sexual imagery, I'm going to kind of let the Bible hold on to that. <laughs> I'm not going to uh, say anything hopefully that make you blush. You, you may receive interesting questions from your children when you get home. What did that word mean? <laughs> um, so good luck with that. Um, but it, it's really important stuff that we're talking about, right? I mean, it's all over the place in the Bible. It's very important um, when we talk about human sexuality. Our, our sexuality is fundamental to our nature as human beings. So when God created humanity, he created them, male and female, in his own image, and he gave them to each other. The very first thing he did was give them to each other in marriage. Right? Um, he instituted marriage as a, as a covenant, a relationship that's bound by oaths and vows. and um, He gave us marriage as, as a loving, faithful, monogamous, lifelong union between one man and one woman. And when he did that, um, he was deliberately reflecting something important about himself, about the divine nature. Uh, that relationship, uh, that, that first relationship, that first marriage, um, originally was one of pure and perfect intimacy. Right? It says in Genesis 2, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were both naked and were not ashamed. So they knew each other completely. Whenever that word know shows up in the Bible, you, you might consider the fact that it has to do with something more than just intellectual knowledge. Sometimes, actually a lot of the time, it has to do with knowing someone at a deep personal level. It's actually used... Um, I don't know if euphemistically is even the right term for it, but um, sexual relations, right? Someone knew his wife, that means they had sexual relations, right? So the man and his wife knew each other at every level, most deeply, right, completely, and they accepted each other totally, right? They were utterly vulnerable with each other without fear of rejection. They enjoyed... Um, Mutual abandonment and self-giving without shame. They had no secrets. They had no suspicions. They just had only pure love. Right? Um, <clears throat> two persons had become one flesh and enjoyed a, a beautiful, really a, like a mystical union. And then so sex was the consummation of that the pinnacle of that, the emblem of that one flesh union, right? And um, in that perfectly intimate marital relationship, so sex was the physical delight that fleshed out the spiritual delight, the emotional and relational del delight that our first parents shared, right? And, and that whole relationship between their whole persons, whole beings, uh, reflects the complete unity of the divine persons of the Trinity, right? In, in eternal, delighted, glorious love. So uh, your crazy theological term for the week is uh, perichoresis. Perichoresis. Um, 
Synonyms are co-indwelling, co-inherence, mutual interpenetration, and circumcision, not to be confused with circumcision. <laughs> so you know you're in trouble. There's no hope when four synonymous terms are equally as opaque as the original term you're trying to understand. But basically, perichoresis is used to describe the total intimate union of the being of the persons of the Trinity, right? Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Biblical language that reflects this is found in John's Gospel where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Or the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Right? Um, so it's kind of mystical language. But the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, one God in essence, united in mutual self-giving and knowing and uh, glorying in one another. It's, it's a delighted love that has been shared from all eternity by the three persons of the Trinity. So divine, eternal, joyful love, holy communion, eternal companionship, uh, transparency, vulnerability, intimacy, these describe the ultimate reality of God's being. It's not just some attribute that he has, something that he enjoys. That's who he is. Uh, intimacy uh, defines him. And to exalt and share his love, he created other, right? Uh, humanity in his own image who would be very different from himself. Um, our God is the God who loves the other because that's who he is. And, and he created humanity, male and female, and gave us marriage so that love of other would characterize us too in that deepest human relationship. Love of other is defining. Intimacy is defining for us. It is what we were made for in God's image. So, again, then, sex as created by God to be enjoyed in marriage is meant to reflect that, that pure mutual self-giving love. Um, just so that you've heard it in church at least once in your life, sex is not dirty. Right? Sex is not bad. It's not some sort of necessary evil for the purpose of um, reproduction. Sex, as it was originally intended by God, is beautiful and it's mystical and it's a fundamental part of who we are. It's a fundamental part of our nature. It was meant as a place for you to lose yourself in delight as you give yourself fully to another without manipulation or shame. It was meant to be the pinnacle of earthly intimacy in the context of a, a loyal, lifelong commitment and acceptance And then we threw all that away a long time ago, right? Um, when humanity rebelled against its creator, against the divine lover. The immediate effect of the first sin was shame. It says that Adam and Eve instantly had the sense that they were naked and being vulnerable with each other was dangerous. There was something wrong here now being naked with one another, right? Um, 
They couldn't stand anymore to let themselves be known because uh, they had feared that that would mean condemnation and rejection. They had broken the bond of perfect union, perfect intimacy, first with God himself, but then that affected their relationship with one another. So now there's no more pleasure in utterly knowing each other and being known. Now there would be distance and secrets and suspicions. No more self-giving. Now it would be self-protecting and self-seeking. Now we don't just we don't just use sex to get pleasure for ourselves. Now we use other people to get sex. We've warped and distorted and corrupted sex so far away from its original intent um, that we can't even remember what it was supposed to be for as a society. But even though we are broken uh, sexually, we're still in God's image. And our sexuality is still a part of our nature. Um, So, since we don't know how to use it right, (laughs) or don't want to maybe, um, we abuse it. We idolize it. We look for our ultimate fulfillment in it. We use it to get power over others. We're enslaved to it. Our, Our souls are starved for intimacy, for true intimacy, especially eternal intimacy with God, divine intimacy. Our souls are starved for it. But we've ruined that that ultimate relationship with our sin so that the best we can do now is pretend that we're getting love by getting sex. Before marriage, in marriage, outside of marriage, whatever. Dallas Willard said, one of the most telling things about contemporary human beings is that they cannot find a reason for not committing adultery. Yet intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul, and we cannot escape it. This has always been true and remains true today. We now keep hammering the sex button in the hope that a little intimacy might finally dribble out. In vain. For intimacy comes only within the framework of individualized faithfulness within the kingdom of God. And so adultery, as stated here in the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is having sexual relations with um, someone else's spouse. That's what the language actually means. It doesn't mean when you're married, you shouldn't sleep with someone else. Of course, it implies that. <laughs> but literally, literally, it's um, uh, if someone else is married, you shouldn't sleep with them. Right? Um, so you can be single and guilty of adultery. Um, in fact, theologically, really, any sexual activity that you engage in outside the context of a loving and faithful marriage is it qualifies as adultery and in fact Jesus takes it a step further in our New Testament reading um, Matthew 5 um, maybe you're familiar with this he said you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart how do you escape that? You know, lustful intent qualifies as adultery, as a breaking of this commandment. So the heart problem, the core kind of root issue of this commandment is lust, right? Which can express itself in various forms of sexual immorality. It's not just limited to uh, adultery, but I mean, clearly marital infidelity is the, um, 
the focal point of the commandment, but other things too, um, like uh, like withholding sex from your spouse, manipulating, using using sex to manipulate your spouse, uh, fantasies that are contained only in your head, or fantasies that you only engage in through a computer screen, uh, or through a romance novel, or masturbation, or seduction, or violence in sex, rape, incest, polygamy, prostitution, pedophilia, bestiality, homosexuality, divorcing and remarrying without biblical grounds. And the list goes on. This is not a thorough list. Uh, and I'm not going to take time to describe how each of those things qualifies as adultery, but all of them are a breaking of the seventh commandment because they're entirely self-centered distortions of sex. We do these things to get something for ourselves, not to give ourselves. We do these things to feel desired by someone else. We do these things to feel safe, not utterly vulnerable before one another while still getting some measure of this um, sexual pleasure, satisfaction, fulfillment. We do these things to control our relational pain, to manage our loneliness or our emptiness. We do these things to assert our power or control over others, to treat them as conquests rather than serving their pleasures. We use others for our own pleasure in the worst ways because when we're doing that, we're exposing their nakedness for ourselves. We're taking advantage of their vulnerability. All of this amounts ultimately to um, false intimacy. There's a good book by Harry Schomburg called False Intimacy that we should all read. Um, All the benefits of getting the bodily pleasure of intimacy without any of the relational risks of losing yourself to the other, the the vulnerability aspect of intimacy. We have a deep need to stand naked and unashamed before another. But hey, um, if we can just get naked, that's good enough, right? Because we're ashamed. We forgot what true intimacy was supposed to be like, but we'll just settle for this. We'll settle for this. And the real problem is, like with all our sin, you can't just settle for it. Uh, We can't get enough. We're obsessed. We're We're addicted, we're enslaved. Sure, lust um, is not the way that it is supposed to be. Adultery steals from our neighbor. Sexual immorality turns people into objects. It debases us. It robs us of our human dignity. It pollutes society. It destroys the body. It brings financial ruin and depression. It destroys our reputations. It wrecks our families for generations. It distorts and darkens our minds. It enslaves our bodies, and we can land in prison for it. And ultimately, it brings judgment, eternal damnation. But hey, we love it anyway. We've got to do it. We're enslaved to it. Apart from God's grace at work in our lives, we simply are not free from sexual sin, any of us. 
We're looking for something that no one in the world can provide. We're trying to recreate for ourselves the Garden of Eden. We want someone who knows everything about us, yet fully accepts us. Someone before whom we can stand naked in our souls and be unashamed and enjoy communion. We lost that a long time ago when we broke everything in our sin and we don't know how to get it back. Because surely God knows us, right? Surely God knows us and he rejects us for who we are. Right? Surely God sees the depths of our souls. He sees our shame. He sees our ugliness. And in his righteousness, he hides his face, doesn't he? No. There is hope for true intimacy because of God's love for you, because of Jesus Christ. The Son of God became one of us. He kept all the commandments for us perfectly. He kept this commandment. We can't even imagine what it's like to keep this commandment perfectly. And he took all of your sins upon himself at the cross, and he was stripped naked, and he was publicly shamed, and he was rejected by his heavenly Father so that you wouldn't be, so that you could be accepted in his place. He covers us with his love. He spreads out the garments of his righteousness over us so that God is absolutely delighted to receive us. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because of his grace, because of his free favor toward you as seen in his sacrifice, the perfect, intimate union that Christ shared with his Father from all eternity is yours. You're invited into that. It's yours. And nothing can change that. Jesus prayed in John 17, that even as the Father is in him and he is in the Father, so also he would be in us and we in him and we would all be one. True divine intimacy is yours forever. There's perfect safety in vulnerability for you in God's presence. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you. And he loves you anyway. In fact, he rejoices over you. Because of Jesus. <clears throat> so I met an older uh, lady this week, not, uh, not a Christian, and um, she was distraught, she was depressed, she was crying. Her, she was just dumping all this stuff on me. Her first marriage was characterized by mutually acceptable adultery. She said, I cheated on him, he cheated on me, and we were okay with that. And then her most recent relationship was a live-in boyfriend of 15 years. Uh, just ended with him moving out, dumped her. Right. And that sounds pretty awful to me. She's pretty much a mess. Uh, 
and she told me what I've learned from it all is that there's someone special out there for each of us, for all of us. And when it's right, you'll stay true to each other. I'm confused as to why she was saying that, because clearly she hadn't found that yet, considering her story. But it's true nonetheless. There is someone special out there for all of us. And when it's right, we'll be true to each other. God has given his son as your bridegroom, church. He's placed you in the church, which is his bride. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. This bridegroom has made his vow never to leave you or forsake you, and he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. He's true to you. Hosea chapter 2, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. The Lord Jesus has poured his love into your heart by his spirit. He's softening your heart toward him. He's enabling you to keep his commandments, enabling you to be faithful and true to him. And you stand naked and unashamed before your beloved, completely at his mercy. He can do whatever he wants with you. And what he wants is to bring you into his home, heaven, as his bride. What he wants is to throw the feast of all feasts in celebration of pure love. He is jealous over you. His name is jealous. Second Corinthians 11, Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Are you a pure virgin in God's sight? No. In Christ, you are a pure virgin that is presented to God's Son as his bride. What he wants is to be known by you, even as he has known you. So, repent and turn away from false sources of intimacy and satisfaction and trust in him. Turn to him as the one true source of intimacy and satisfaction. Ed Clowney has a good quote. As the divine bridegroom, Jesus has transformed the seventh commandment. He has lifted us through union with himself to taste the heavenly passion of God's love. The joy of being one flesh in in sexual union fades with age and will not endure through eternity, but the love of his bride, the church, centers on the Lord forever. Only that love will purify the hearts of his own. So when by faith you can say, I am my beloved's, and he is mine, when by faith you can say, I love because he first loved me, then you can be truly free from other false, forbidden loves. In your marriage, you can give yourself to the pleasure of your spouse and delight in one another in faithful love all your days. You can. 
Right? The wonderful thing about married love is that um, at, the, at the climax of it, it's your, it's your duty to love your spouse, and it's your greatest delight. Duty and delight mate perfectly in, uh, in marital love. You owe your spouse love. It is your duty. And when you increase your spouse's delight, your delight increases. It's how God made it to be. It's a paradox, right? The more that you give of yourself, the greater the joys of marital love. If you're not married, you can give yourself utterly, utterly to Christ, like Paul did. Longing for the day when your true love is consummated, yet not seeking the consummation of it, not seeking the fulfillment of it outside the will of your Lord. Because this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. First Thessalonians. And you need to know that even if your life has been characterized by sexual sin and, and brokenness, that God loves you and he can use you in his kingdom to bring, to bring healing and redemption. Just look at King David. He was married. He lusted after another man's wife. He brought her to himself. He slept with her, got her pregnant, and he killed her husband in order to manage the terrible situation that he created. I mean, that's messed up, right? That's, that's sexual brokenness and sin, uh, destroying somebody's life, life. And God humbled David. God forgave David. And God used David in his kingdom, and Jesus himself was descended from David's flesh. The Savior of the world came through that line. So there's no knowing how God might use you to advance his grace, but you can know for sure that you are a recipient of his grace, a full participant in that grace, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, because of Jesus Christ. So... uh, I'm going to close by reading um, Psalm 51, which is David's great psalm of the confession of his sin. That will be our prayer for Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from all my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Amen.